Well, if you want to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, our sermon text today is Romans 5, just a couple verses, verses 1 through 2. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word today. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, everything that's there because you tell us that all scripture is uh, given, is breathed out by you and given for us uh, that we might be uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work, that we might be made complete in you. And so we ask that you would fill us with your spirit today. Teach us your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've already said it a few times, uh, but today is Reformation Sunday. Uh, You might know, I'm sure most of you probably are aware, that October 31st is not just a day to dress up and get candy, uh, although it is that, I suppose, but it's also the day uh, Hallow's Eve, you you get Halloween, that's what that is, was the day that Martin Luther uh, penned and and posted his 95 theses to the door of the, the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, they didn't have Facebook and uh, online uh, debate forums. And so what he did back in his day, some 504 years ago, was take this document that he had written and tacked it to the door of the church. And it was kind of an invitation for debate. Uh, he wasn't trying to start a fight or a revolution. He just wanted an honest and open debate. Uh, in, in many ways, most of it was about the practice in the Roman Catholic Church called indulgences. But as, as seems to be the case, uh, the gospel is affected by all these kinds of things. And so the gospel came up, the authority of the scriptures came up and all these things. And so the rest, they say, is history. Uh, That event that we may not think very much of from day to day in our lives is uh, it would probably be very difficult to overstate the importance and significance of that one little event. And not just for church history, but for the history of the world itself. You know, much of the world's history was changed I'm sure he didn't think that was going to happen when he did that. Uh, but most of the, much of the world's history was changed for the better by that one small, simple seeming act of Martin Luther on that day. Now, Martin Luther went on to say uh, later that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, he called that the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. That is how important he saw that to be. Uh, John Calvin also called it uh, the hinge on which the Christian religion turns. The hinge on which the Christian religion turns. And so if they are correct, and I think they are, then what we believe and teach as a church, what we believe as individual Christians uh, about this doctrine of the gospel, of doctrine of justification, um, among other things, it reveals the true state and measure of a church, even our church, in ways that can't be said of many other things. There are many ways to measure a church. Rob mentioned uh, something along those lines not too long ago in the service when he talked about looking for the truth in a church when you're looking for a church. Um, You know, evangelical churches, even reformed churches can and do at times disagree on many other things, many important things. Some of our disagreements are not on on side issues that that are debatable, but uh, we disagree at times on 
things such as the sacraments, things such as eschatology, the end times, things such as the proper biblical form of church government. None of those things are unimportant. If they're in the scriptures, they are important, but we can disagree on those things without, in most cases anyway, breaking fellowship uh, between Christians and between churches. And I'm thankful that for all of our differences in some things, that uh, I believe in most cases we have had just that, fellowship with other churches and Christians from different backgrounds, uh, because we don't disagree on the gospel. You know, if you get justification wrong, you essentially get the gospel wrong. There's no other way to look at it. And if you get the gospel wrong, at some point, we cease to be a church at all, at least any, a true church. If we get the gospel wrong, we should just close the doors. Uh, we are church in name only at that point. And so uh, Rob sort of mentioned it, and we didn't uh, talk about this before the service, but um, you know, if you're ever in need of, of finding a new church home in the future, or whether you move or something, whatever the case may be, there are a lot of things that you should inquire of and carefully consider uh, in doing that. You should think about the churches, that the, what their view of Scripture is, what their view of God is, what their view of the Trinity is, what their view of the atonement of Christ is, or the sovereignty of God and salvation. You know, that list could be rather, can be rather long. Um, you know, if only most professing Christians chose their churches and considered those kinds of things when they did so, Uh, when looking for a church, but you would do very well to make sure that any prospective new church home you find holds to and teaches a right biblical understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's not the only thing, but I would say it's probably the main thing. It's, It's a litmus test for a church's standing or falling as a church, to use Martin Luther's phrase. You know, whatever programs or amenities it may have, if it doesn't get the gospel right, you have to say no. You have to cross it off your list. In his great old book uh, by J.C. Ryle, uh, Old Paths, Ryle writes this. There is hardly any subject about which so many mistakes are made. There is none about which mistakes are more injurious to the soul. You get a lot of doctrines wrong, but when you get this one wrong, it has drastically terrible effects. Uh, Charles Hodge, the great 19th century Princeton theologian, great Presbyterian theologian, writes this. He puts it more starkly. He says, when the mind is enlightened by divine truth and duly impressed with a sense of guilt, it cannot fail anxiously to inquire, how can a man be just with God? The answer given to this question decides the character of our religion. And if practically adopted, in other words, not not just if you say it, but if you actually believe it in your heart of hearts, if practically adopted, it decides our future destiny. To give a wrong answer is to mistake the way to heaven. It is to err where error is fatal because it cannot be corrected. If God requires one thing and we present another How can we be saved if he has revealed a method in which he, God, can be just and the justify, or sorry, if if he has revealed a method in which he can be just and yet justify the sinner, and we reject that method and insist upon pursuing a different way, how can we hope to be accepted? That's what this is about. That's what the doctrine of justification, that that great Reformation doctrine uh, that we associate with that event, Uh, is about 
How can we be made right and accepted before a holy God? God has made a way, one way, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so if we choose another way and have a different view of justification and seek to be justified in some other way, uh, how, can we, how, how can we ever hope to be saved and accepted by God? So as is often the case, I thought we should give a definition first and foremost. What exactly is justification? What does that word mean in the biblical sense? It's the... Uh, it's hard to beat, uh, I think, the Westminster Shorter Catechism's definition in, in question and answer 33. You know, if there was ever one that I would recommend that you put to memory and memorize, uh, this would be a good one to do. Question 33 says simply, what is justification? Answer, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So justification is about the grace of God in saving sinners. It's about how God forgives all of our sins and how he accepts us as righteous in his sight by faith in Christ. And that is what Paul teaches in our text this morning. The, the catechism is not our <coughs> primary standard. It is our secondary standard, but much and I would say most of what it teaches us is lifted right from the pages of Scripture. Look at Romans 5, 1 to 2 again. It says, Paul writes, uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by what? By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So peace with God, a right standing before God by his grace, that is another way, I think, of saying what the catechism says, or you could say that vice versa, forgiveness of sins and the acceptance of our persons as righteous in Christ before God. Now, can you think of a more precious truth in all of the Bible than that? There's lots of great truths in Scripture, but that one probably tops them all. Uh, so the first thing we want to see in our text that Paul points out to us today is, is the manner or way of our justification in Christ. That is, how can you and I be justified if we are sinners? What do we have to do, as I said in Acts chapter 2, what do we have to do in order to be saved? Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by what? By faith. Just as the catechism tells us that our justification, that in that we receive the righteousness of Christ unto salvation by faith alone. Even so here, Paul starts out by telling us and reminding us that we are justified by faith as well. Our justification, our salvation, it, must, it has to be by faith alone. And why is, you ever ask yourself why that is? Of all the things that God could have set in place uh, for our salvation, why does it have to be by faith? You ever wonder why that is? It has to be by faith alone that it may be by grace alone. It can't be a, a, by works, and it can't even be by a mixture of faith plus works. I think that's what many Christians, many professing Christians think. I don't think many people, even Roman Catholics, would say that it's by works, strictly speaking. But they would tend to say it's by a little bit of both, a little bit of faith and a little bit of works. But if you mix faith plus works, it's no longer grace. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, one chapter prior to our text. Romans 4.16, he says, Therefore, it, that's our salvation, it is of faith that it might be by grace. 
Because what does faith do? Faith accepts something. It's not doing something. It's believing and accepting something. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end or for the purpose. The promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to that, uh, not, not, not only to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words, if it's by works in any, in any part, if part of your justification depends on your works, what hope do you have of heaven? How could you possibly have assurance that you're ever right with God? Because we still sin, every single one of us, every day of our lives. Not to jump ahead before we get to the blessings or results of justification that we're going to look at in a minute. But if it's, if it's because we've been justified by faith that we have peace with God, what does that say about the person who seeks to be justified by, before God by works? Such a person can never hope to truly have peace with God. Charles Hodge again writes this. He says, Paul, Paul says that this peace is the result of justification by faith. He who relies on his works for justification can have no peace. He can neither remove the displeasure of God nor quiet the apprehension of punishment. Notice that Paul puts, puts the word there, uh, in justification in the past tense or the aorist tense in the Greek he says we have been not we are being not we will be he says we have been justified you know the catechism also reflects that as well when it calls justification an act not a work an act of God's free grace you know sanctification the catechism question 35 calls sanctification the work of God's grace not the act of God's grace in other words Sanctification is God's present tense, ongoing work in the lives of believers, sanctifying us more and more by his grace. But not justification. Justification is a one-time act of God's grace. In other words, once it's done, it's done, and it's done perfectly. It's a done deal. The believer's justification, your justification before God, if you're a believer, does not in any way involve degrees or progress. You are either justified or you're not. There is no growing in justification. There is no difference in justification between one believer and another. There is no, no such thing as a Christian that's more justified than another Christian. You either are or you aren't. Larger Catechism question 77 says that justification, quote, does equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God and that perfectly in this life so that they never fall into condemnation. Every believer in Jesus Christ is perfectly justified in this life and equally justified in this life as every other believer. You know, degrees or progress in sanctification may differ in this life from one believer to the next, from one time to the next, but not justification. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you are as fully justified in the sight of a holy God, as fully forgiven and accepted by God in Christ, as you will ever be. You are as fully justified in God's sight if you're in Christ as you'll ever be, even in heaven. Even in heaven, your justification is not more than it was here. And why is that? Because you are accepted on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, the perfect, spotless, sinless righteousness of Christ put to your account 
by faith. In other words, the marvel of justification is that in Christ by faith, you are as accepted as Jesus is. You are as viewed as sinless and justified before a holy, all-seeing God, all-knowing God as Jesus is because you're accepted and justified in Christ. That's a hard truth to get your mind wrapped around, but it's one that's worth the effort. None of us, I dare say, on your best day, I bet none of you, I know I don't, ever feel that justified before God, that forgiven by God, that accepted by God, but that's the glory of the gospel, is that if, if you are in Christ by faith, that is how much, how greatly, how perfectly you have been forgiven and accepted in your person by God. Well, next, our text there, Paul begins to tell us just some of the implications or the blessings, the results of that justification we have by Christ, uh, by the grace of God. You could say that these are some of the results and benefits or blessings of justification. And the first thing he mentions is peace with God. The first one he mentions as a result of our justification in Christ by faith is that we have peace with God. Look again at verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith or having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, through him or through whom we have also received, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So peace with God, free access and standing in God's grace having been fully restored to favor with God. Those are the blessings, just some of them, that you have in Christ if you're a believer this morning. Who in their right mind would trade all of that for anything? Who would take that and say, no, I'll try to be justified by my own works? It's a fool's fool's bargain. Uh, Those are just some of the many blessings we have in Christ. Peace with God. What could be more important than that? There's many things that we all like. There are many things we all fear losing. But peace with God, there can't be anything more important to us at the end of the day than that. Only, only peace with God matters. And on our own, left to yourselves by your own works, by your own righteousness, you can have no peace with God. On our own, there is no such thing as peace with God. Isaiah 48:22 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Whose testimony is that? It's in the Bible, so it's God's word. But just in case we missed the point, he says, says the Lord, no peace for the wicked, for those who have not trusted in Christ and repented of their sins. The Bible tells us that on our own, outside of Christ, left to ourselves, we are all of us, even the most outwardly moral of us, at enmity or strife with God. In other words, on our own, we may not feel like it, we may not seem to it like it to other people, But on our own, outside of Christ, we are enemies of God. And so we abide under his wrath. Romans 5, verses 10 to 11 says this. Paul says later on in our chapter, verses 10 and 11, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation so according to the scriptures the word of God left to ourselves outside of Christ we are at war with God not a smart battle to pick that's a war we cannot win 
Our only hope in that is that if God himself makes peace for us, with us. And that is what God did precisely in sending his son to die for our sins, that his wrath might be propitiated and paid in full in our place. He reconciled us, as Paul says to himself, through the death of his son. Now, peace with God in our text can be taken in a couple different ways, uh, both of which I think are closely related. I don't think you have to pick one or the other. Uh, I believe that in our text, Paul intends both senses of the term. Uh, first, peace with God has to do uh, peace of God has to do with our objective standing before God, so that we are no longer under the wrath of God for our sins, but have been reconciled to Him. So, peace meaning the actual cessation or ceasing of hostility between us and God. But the second piece that I think is intended here, also it has to do with that, is that sense of peace and conscience, peace of conscience and heart before God that is ours only in Christ. And that's a sense of peace that can only be ours uh, with that first kind of peace being a reality. In other words, the sense of peace can only be, if it's true, can only be an outgrowth of having true peace with God through Christ. And so I'll ask this morning, do you, do you have peace with God today? Do you have peace with, are you still at enmity with God or do you have peace with him? You can have true peace with God only through faith in Christ his son. If you are trying to in any way depend upon your own works, your own morality, your own goodness, your own religiosity, that will never do and you will never know that kind of peace in your heart and mind and life until you have true peace with God only through faith in his son. Romans 3.20 says this, For by works of the law, no human being or literally no flesh will be justified in his sight, in God's sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, the self-justifying type, on our own, that's what we all are. We're like the rich young ruler in the Gospels. Remember, he, he came in front of everybody, came to Christ, and said, good teacher, you know, what do I have to do to, to, you know, to inherit eternal life? I mean, he comes to the right source, comes to the right person, uh, asks the right question, seemingly does it in the right posture. I believe it says in the text he kneeled or got down on his knees. You know, it's, it's the perfect evangelistic opportunity, but what does he start doing? When Jesus starts naming commandments off, does he say, oh, then what do I have to do? No, he says, all these I've kept since my youth. And Jesus looked at him and loved him, it says. But he corrected him. He showed him that he didn't obey the commandments, that he didn't love his neighbor as himself or love God enough to leave all his possessions behind and follow Christ. For by the works of the law, no flesh, none, will be justified in his sight. What the law's first function for us as sinners is to do is to be a mirror showing us our sin. If we have our, our right minds about us, if we're reading the Bible, and when you first hear the scriptures and you see the commandments, our first thought shouldn't be, oh, I've done, been there, done that. It should be, how many ways have I broken that and how can I be saved if that is the case? For all who are justified by simple faith in Christ have peace with God as our settled possession, only by faith in Christ, by God's grace. Well, the next blessing of justification that Paul mentions in our text is a right standing with God. Not just peace with God, but a right standing with God by his grace. In verse 2 again, he says, through him, through Christ, we have obtained access by faith. There's that phrase again 
by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I think what that means is it's speaking of our being reconciled to God and being in a right standing before him. It's being received back into the favor and grace of God. There's something we can never hope to attain on our own. You know, that that definition of justification in, in question 33, uh, there's two sides of that gospel coin, so to speak, right? One is the forgiveness of, your, of all your sins, and the other is being accepted by God as righteous in his sight. One's negative, one's positive. The forgiveness is God taking your, your record of sins and wiping that slate clean because he puts it on Christ. It's by his chastisement, by his stripes that we're healed. But the other side is, is even more amazing. It isn't just that God is no longer going to punish you for your sins because he's punished Christ in your place. It's that he accepts you into his, back into his favor. That, you know, I think the first of those things, the forgiveness part, sometimes we can, I think, grasp that pretty well. The second part, it's hard to grasp that God accepts you back into his good graces, into his favor through faith in Christ when he justifies you. That's something we can never hope to attain on our own. It's only by faith in Christ that we have this access to God, that he accepts us in his, as his people. Now, the word for have or have obtained in the ESV and the word stand in the Greek are in what's called the perfect tense. That is a, a something that sometimes it can be hard to translate and give the force of uh, in English, but it has the idea, much like our justification, of something being done and settled, of it being a done deal, something that has been done or granted that has ongoing abiding validity. And so if you're in Christ by faith, according to the scriptures here, you now have and always will have in him a right standing before God and access to the grace of God. That's your, new, that's your new standing before God if you're in Christ by faith. And notice that this right standing before God that we possess in Christ is only and always by his grace. There's a reason he keeps bringing that word up again and again throughout his writings and the scriptures. We do not and cannot ever hope to stand before God on our own merits. It must be by his grace in Christ we must be clothed with Christ's righteousness alone in order to be accepted by God. What a blessing to be reconciled to God by his grace in Jesus Christ and then have access to God and his grace forever. You know that, that verse in Hebrews about prayer that we love to quote. I know I love to quote where he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. That's free access to God. How do you, ha- how do you and I have that? Only in Christ by his grace through faith in him. And so I'll ask again this morning, are you standing in the grace of God? Do you enjoy access and acceptance before God in Jesus Christ? If so, you can worship God acceptably. You can approach God in prayer and you can call upon him in prayer as your heavenly father or your father in heaven. All that is the the new standing you have by the grace of God through faith alone in our justification. Now, the last thing that Paul tells us in our text is that as a result of all this, he says in verse uh, two, he says, because of all this, we, quote, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's like he just keeps on piling things one on top of another that we have a hard time grasping and, and, and believing. 
Only a justified sinner saved by the grace of God, having peace with God, and a right standing in his grace forever can say such a thing that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And I keep talking about grammatical things, I apologize, but the word rejoice there is in the present tense. You're having peace, you're standing in the grace of God, all of that is in the perfect tense. But your response to that, our response to that, is in the present tense. That rejoicing is present. In other words, it's to be a constant, ongoing thing. We, we who are in Christ always have reason to rejoice in Christ. We are told in the scriptures in Philippians 4, verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord when? Always. What does that imply? We always have great reason to rejoice in the Lord. On top of that, according to our text, we rejoice even in the hope of heaven, even in the hope of sharing in the glory of Christ on that last day. None of us could ever say, in, in the foggiest imagination we could have, I hope you don't think this, that you think you could deserve any of that. I deserve the glory of God. No, we, no, we don't. But in Christ, that's what you have to look forward to. And we, we, we can rejoice in that hope. And I didn't include this in our text, but in the next two verses, verses 3 and 4, Paul goes on to say that we who are in Christ even not just rejoice in hope of the glory of God, we even, he says, rejoice in our sufferings. I don't know about you, but that doesn't come naturally to me. I don't think it comes naturally to any of us. Uh, why can we rejoice in our sufferings? That, that's weird. That makes no sense. Your unbelieving friends and family would look at you like you had two heads when you talk like that. But you can talk like that because the scripture puts those kinds of words in our mouths. But why is that? Uh, because none of those sufferings can ever endanger the hope of heaven that we have in Jesus Christ. We rejoice even in our sufferings because not only can they never endanger our hope of glory in Christ, but according to Paul, by the work of the Holy Spirit within us, those same sufferings and trials, as bad and painful as they are, actually serve to increase our hope. That's nuts, but that's the gospel. Sufferings don't hurt you at the end. They actually, God uses them to work good in you and increase your hope of heaven, the hope of glory in Christ. No wonder the Protestant reformers who knew their share of suffering saw this doctrine of justification as being such a vital central truth to the Christian faith and life. May the Lord Jesus Christ work in you and me by his Holy Spirit this morning that we might come to clearly know and understand the glorious truth of our justification in Christ by faith alone that you and I might more and more learn from day to day, from year to year to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen.